We thank you for tuning in to the Piney Grove Baptist Church podcast. We do hope that this message will bring you hope, peace, and joy through the Lord Jesus. Our attention today will be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, entitled, The Futility of Disobedience. Well, we hope that you enjoy this message today, and may the Lord richly all right, so let's, uh, let's grab our Bible and let's turn it to Acts chapter 9. And you may be well aware that this is the conversion of Saul, who will be most famously known as the Apostle Paul. And our verses for today, we'll be looking at chapter 1 through verse 22, the sermon that I have entitled, The Futility of Disobedience. The futility of disobedience. If you found that in your Bible, let me hear you say amen. And so I must say it was a very good and wonderful time being able to spend a week on the mission field in, in uh, Lewisburg, West Virginia. And it reminded me of an old uh, Twilight Zone episode that, called, that is entitled, People Are the Same All Over. People are the same all over. We made some friends along the way and had opportunity to bond as a mission team together. Mission sometimes often brings the team together in, in closer uh, relation with one another. And in a few days from now, we will share those experiences with you. And I'm convinced, as I have always been convinced, that a church that is not involved with missions, both home and abroad is a church that is in danger of decline. The reason that mission teams go to home missions or otherwise is very simple. Because Jesus commanded his church to go and make disciples. So I want to say thank you on behalf of West Virginia mission team uh, thank you to Piney Grove for your support, your prayers. And I know that we will be asking again for your prayers and support in the future as we look for other opportunities to go on mission. So again, thank you for your generosity, your prayers, and number one, your trust in the Lord's mission. Your trust in the Lord's mission. Now that we have our Bibles turned to the book of Acts, I trust that you were encouraged last week from our student report. Would you encourage last week from that? Amen. Let's give them a hand for that. Yeah. It's good to see how the Lord is using our, our students and youth to really to, to make disciples. And that's really what the church is called to do is to make disciples. We are proud of them. And uh, we are certainly excited about what the Lord is going to do. Uh, in their future and for the future of the body of Christ. But for today, let's turn again, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, the futility of disobedience. I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from verses 1 through verse 22. The word of the Lord says this, beginning at verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon his name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He rose and he was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Saul increased all more in strength, confound the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Father, we ask your blessing upon this reading. We know your word is breathed by you. We pray that it would find a place in our ears, Lord, that we may hear, Lord, and that we may live it out. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, we are reintroduced to one Saul of Tarsus. And last time that we saw Saul, uh, Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul was right there as Stephen was stoned because of his witness for Jesus. We then find, fast forward a bit, we find Philip going into Samaria and preaching to the people there. God moved in a mighty way. People were being liberated, believing in Jesus, were being baptized according, according to their profession of Jesus. They were saved, and as they were saved, they were baptized afterward as Jesus commanded the Lord informs Philip that he has more work to do towards Gaza. So he makes a trip down towards Gaza and he encounters an Ethiopian man who had returned from Jerusalem with a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And this man from Ethiopia was reading from this scroll, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a sheep that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Philip begins 
to help this man understand what he is reading. And he takes these verses from Isaiah and he begins to explain to this Ethiopian eunuch who Jesus is. Jesus is this suffering servant. He takes him to the cross and he takes him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The man is saved. They go down to the water and they are baptized. The Ethiopian man comes out of the water and Philip is translated supernaturally from Gaza to Azotus. And he preaches all the way up to Caesarea. The Lord has been at work in his church. And this is an intermission of sorts. It's to show how the Lord is growing his church numerically from this spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria down unto portions of the uttermost parts of the world. The Lord is growing his church numerically and geographically. He is making disciples through other disciples, and through the apostles. And through this intermission of sorts, we find ourselves back today to Saul of Tarsus. And the first two verses in chapter 9 lay out the context for the reader. After the stoning of Stephen, the church is dispersed, and Saul was on a mission from God. Saul was zealous He was on a mission from the Lord, or at least he thinks he is on mission from God. What is his mission? His mission is to go on a campaign to rid the world of those people who were called the way. These are people who are following this man named Jesus. And according to the Sanhedrin and the chief priest, He is a man that is a little off his rocker, a little crazy, if you will, to think that he is the Son of God. But this Son of God went to the cross, died on the cross, and rose again, proving indeed that he is the Son of God, the Messiah that they were seeking for for so long. The Bible picks up with this context in verse 1 and 2 that says, Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples from the stoning of Stephen to chasing the dispersed. He went to the high priest and he asked letters to the synagogue of Damascus in verse 2 so that anyone belonging to the way. Now in your Bible, it's probably have that capitalized, giving you an indication that the translators know that this is what the early church was called. They called themselves the way. These are men or women who called themselves the way, and Saul is to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. This was the first wave of persecution for the early church. Saul was filled with with, uh, so much zealousy. At the beginning of verse 1, there's this hyperbolic language that is used. It's almost to say, breathing threats and murder is almost to say that every breath that he took was about pursuing these people for the sake of Yahweh. Saul was like a war horse who had captured the scent of battle. It was all-out war for Saul, and he is imposing it upon people who call themselves the way. He goes to Caiaphas or Annas, and he asks for permission to pursue these people. And as we have already read, the persecuted church was scattered abroad and, and are working out in many directions, and Saul being the strategist that he is. He knows that the church has spread abroad. 
And so he goes as far north as he can to try to somehow suppress this scattering. So he goes way up north, heads way up north to Damascus to bring back these Christ followers to stand on trial for blasphemy. Maybe if he can head them off at Damascus, maybe he can suppress their dispersion and stop the spreading once and for all. The Sanhedrin at Jerusalem claimed to have authority over all religious affairs, and they were respected even amongst foreigners who would consider themselves God-fearers in Jerusalem. Bring them back to Jerusalem to stand on trial for blasphemy. Now, this title, as I mentioned earlier, The Way, is interesting. It is found in four other places in the book of Acts and is a reference to followers of Jesus... Followers of Jesus before Antioch. What happened at Antioch? Well, at Antioch, this is the origins of the first calling of the Christ followers as Christians. They were first called Christians, Christ ones, little Christs, at Antioch. F.B. Meyer says of this term, the way, he said that the characteristic is one of the direction of life as determined by faith on Jesus Christ. I would take it to Scripture. Jesus most famously said of Himself, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This bears resemblance on the early church calling themselves the way, since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But see, here's Saul thinking to be on a righteous mission from God, and he will soon meet the risen Lord and be changed forever. I must say this as a side note. I am so glad that I have had an encounter with the risen Jesus. I am so glad, it might not have been the light surrounding like we see here with Saul, but I am so glad that I have had an encounter with Jesus who called me into himself and saved me and many, many others in here. Hallelujah for that, amen? And I will say this, when you have a true encounter with the living Christ, when you have a true encounter with Jesus, it will transform your worldview. It will change the way that you think. It will change the way that you see the world. There are many people in the early church and in early church history who challenge the apostleship of Paul. Read some of his letters. He will uh, defend his apostleship, being called an apostle, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just say this, that the proof is in the pudding. So here is Saul in hot pursuit. In verse 3 is where we pick up. In verse 3. The Bible tells us that he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. A light from heaven shone Around him. So here his his encounter, and it will change his world view. On his way to Damascus, a light shone around Saul, and the imagery is like this: a lightning bolt that strikes the earth, but the illumination still lingers. Have you ever been outside and you've seen a lightning bolt come down very close to you, and you stop for a moment and you're like, Whoa, I hope that that stays over there. Or you might be outside, it's time to pack up and get inside, right? 
So think of this as a lightning bolt, but the illumination still lingers, and it can be likened to a portion of the glory of God that blinded Saul. It got his attention and blinded him. So let me ask you this. Has the Lord ever grabbed your attention? Has the Lord ever intervened through the reading of the Word or circumstances in life? Has the Lord ever got your attention somewhere in your life? And if He has grabbed your attention, then you have been changed. Now, it might not be from a bright light shining around you in your bed at night saying, uh, follow me, or anything like we see on the road to Damascus. But I bet you this, if you have had an encounter with the Lord, has got your attention, you've been reading the Word, and God crushed you and convicted you and called you to a certain task, I, I, would, I would rest assured that it grabbed your attention, but I would also bet that it would make you reconsider some life choices. And I know... So people who have Facebook and social media, may I just say it might be time to reconsider some life choices. This narrative can also be found in Acts chapter 22. And Saul couldn't respond but one way, in humble reverence. He fell to the ground, he heard a voice saying in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not too many times in history will the Lord show himself in this way. It is like the person who says, if God will show himself right now, I'll believe. I've seen atheists. If you strike me right now, I will believe in you. But how dare we, as insignificant worms of human beings that we are, challenge the living God as if God is going to be moved by our broken sinful state to say, Lord, show yourself now, and he shows himself. God will not answer to sinful man. But it is like, if you will show yourself, now I will believe, and Saul will be used by God later. But first, first the Lord must get his attention. I want you to notice this repetition in verse 4. He says, Saul, Saul, as if in a tender and relational way. It is filled with force and it is filled with affection simultaneously. Force and affection. The repetition also carries this notion that whoever is speaking to Saul, haven't identified himself yet, whoever is speaking to Saul is, means business. Means business. The final convincing piece to take this voice seriously is the voice that spoke to Saul, spoke to him in his native language, spoke to him in Hebrew. So he encountered him on the road by a bright light. He called out to him, Saul, Saul, in a tender and forceful way, and he spoke to him using the Hebrew language, and we can reference this from Acts 26 and verse 14. See, Saul had true zeal for the Lord, and we know that. He, had, he was zealous for, Lord, for the Lord, but it was in the wrong direction. And I must also say that sometimes we can find ourselves like that. We think that we're doing a work from the Lord, but sometimes we can be a detriment to the body of Christ by the things that we say and the preferences that we hold on to. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the text. Saul said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And it identifies himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And 
as far as convincing Saul, this is all that he needed to hear at this point. Now, if you see the life of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was what you call a persuader or debater par excellence, which means that he was the top of the top in public debate. He was top of the top in persuasive language. But Saul, at this point, did not utter a word back to Jesus in opposition. R.T. Robertson said this, This surrender of the will to Christ was the conversion of Saul. He was a real person, the risen Christ, to whom he surrendered his life. And on this point, he never wavered from a moment to the end. We don't find where the Apostle Paul wavered from his pursuit of Jesus from this point. Not only will an encounter with Jesus radically change one's worldview, but it, it will change you immediately. Not thoroughly, but immediately. What do I mean by that? Well, the Lord tells Saul to rise and to enter into the city, and you will be told what you are to do there. The men who are traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And the men are not identified. They could be some men that the apostle uh, Paul or Saul picked up along the way or at the beginning of his of his, uh, of his campaign. Uh, we aren't told much about these men. They aren't identified. They see a light. They hear a voice. But they do not understand the voice. They hear the voice, but do not comprehend the voice. So we can take this literally, or you can take this symbolically uh, to those around us who know God has spoken, but do not perceive its truth, or take it literally. So there's implication for both. Saul rose from the ground, and his eyes were open. He saw nothing, and so they led him. These men led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. It wasn't because he wasn't hungry or he wasn't thirsty. Saul is not eating or drinking in response to this encounter and deep contemplation. The Bible tells us later on that he was in prayer. Deep contemplation. Imagine this. I mean, I would be depressed too. Imagine you spent your whole life zealous for Yahweh, thinking that you are in the will of God all of this time and finding out that you are actually anti-Christ and you were standing there when one of Christ's children were stoned to death and you find yourself in opposition to the will of God. I would be depressed and not eating or drinking either. I would be in deep depression, but see, here's the thing. God's grace is greater than our sins. And once we give them to him, Paul had a genuine encounter with the living Lord, and it shook, shook his worldview. It shook him to the core. Even though there is an immediate response and there is a conversion, it's immediate. Saul, like all of us, still need time to process, listen, and learn. How many of us, when we were saved, had it all together? Anybody? Nobody. What can we learn from this Damascus experience so far? Even the most radical cases of conversion, there is not an immediate view of the calling and purpose, just simple faith. Questions like, what course of life do I now take as part of being discipled. What do I do now is part of being discipled. 
Questions like, what exact course of life should I take? Or what are the theological precepts that I should believe as a believer? These are things that over time we come to answer. A nine or ten year old who comes to faith in Jesus will not understand everything about the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. So there are things that are not apparent upon conversion. So that's why this is a Christian walk and not a sprint. We also find aid and guidance from others in Christ. It is imperative. In fact, we need one another. We need guidance. We need assistance when we become a follower of Jesus. And our lives are in constant need of guidance. There is no such thing as a lone ranger follower of Jesus. You will not grow. Saul was changed by this miracle. Jesus appeared to him. And he was dependent on Ananias, this humble disciple in Damascus, to be instructed on what he should do. I think the Lord knew what he was doing all along. The sovereign God of the universe knew what he was doing. He designed the church as a gift so that we could depend on one another. Those who are converted must seek counsel from those in the church who are a step or two ahead of them. Even the most remarkable conversions to take place, even when the most remarkable conversion, there is a sense of your sinfulness. There is a sense of your sin. There is a conviction of your unworthiness. I don't know anybody that I have ever met that had a true encounter with Jesus who said, yeah, I deserved to be saved. I deserve to have my sin washed away by the blood of Christ. There is a sense, a deep sense of sin and a deep sense of unworthiness. And then there is a willingness to be taught and to be instructed by anyone who can give an account in biblical direction. The question is, for you, follower of Jesus, who is your Saul? Now, I know the text is about Jesus. He's the one who saves but this is a lesson also on discipleship. Who is your Saul? Who is the one that you are leading? Who is the one that you are guiding? Who is the one that you are discipling along the way? Not only will this encounter change your worldview, but secondly, a true encounter with Jesus calls for action. It calls us into action. And the action is dualistic. What do I mean by that? The, the, the action is dualistic. First, it is for the converted. And the converted to follow in, in obedience and to seek truth. We are called as followers of Jesus to seek absolute truth in Christ and in Christ alone. There is a second call to action on behalf of the church or individual worshipers in the church. There is a dualistic action of obedience and for the church to come beside of those who are converted in Christ. You know, it amazes me. I hear testimony of people who come to faith in Christ, and um, I hear testimony. They first trusted Jesus, and uh, they might say something like this. I, I heard the gospel. I was convicted of my sin. I repented of, I repented of my sin. I trusted Christ as my Savior. The pastor or the elder or the deacon came up to me with Bible in hand and said, Start reading the Gospel of John. 
or start reading this book on what you do now or read this book on how you become a, uh, a disciple of Jesus or read this book or read that book and there is no direction on how to read the book and we wonder why people don't seek the Lord no more than what they do is because they they have not had direction from the body of Christ on how to seek the Lord or how to read the Bible or how to seek Jesus through the pages of Scripture and in prayer when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord first there is excitement I remember when I was first born again there was excitement then comes urgency what must I do now to sustain this relationship close and clean with my Lord and we must as the church be willing to do all that we can to help those folks draw closer to the Lord and to learn how to walk in their faith there's a disciple in Damascus in verse 10 Ananias the Lord said to him in a vision Ananias he said here am I I want you to notice the two responses from Saul and then Ananias and by the way Ananias name means God is gracious Saul and Ananias Saul said who are you Lord and Ananias said here I am Lord two responses now without veering too far from the text I believe this is how many of us need to respond here today. We have ministry opportunities. We have opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus. We have opportunity to witness to our neighbors. We have opportunities to serve with our hands. We have opportunities to proclaim. We must say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Now we know from the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 22 that Ananias is described as a person who is devout. He's considered devout a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ananias did not know Saul personally, but he heard of Saul. And at this point, he is willing to be obedient. But is, is Ananias' obedience to the Lord, is it without question? Is Ananias' response to going to Saul, is his response without question? Listen, I'll be the first to say something like this Lord what in the world are you having me do here and I, I know like those in here today who are go on Baptist on mission trips I imagine they would probably say something like that through the duration of ministry Lord what am I doing here I find myself Lord what in the world am I going to do but you know what God already always shows up God always gives direction he always without fail faithful he is faithful to direct and to give discernment. I haven't been in a situation where God has not given discernment and direction yet. He said, Lord, the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, the man named Tar uh, from Tarsus, whose name is Saul. For behold, he is praying. He's praying, preparing. I love this play on words. There's a heaviness on the mission of head of Ananias. It goes to show you how deep God's grace is. The street is called Straight in Damascus. It is a place that running in one direct line from east to the western gate. We'd also see this play on words, the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 14 that said, Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads into life and few there be that find it. 
But there is a play on words that is happening here. But this road called Straight, it was about a mile long. It's about 100 feet wide and divided by Corinthian columns into three different avenues. And it stretched from the east to the western gate. Even today, there are remains of the porches and gates that can still be discovered today. But the Lord was preparing. He's working on Saul for the ministry ahead of him. And he informs Ananias that, the, uh, that this man, Saul of Tarsus, is praying. He's seeking the Lord's direction. There's a call to action for Ananias to go to Saul and, and for Paul, or Saul, is, is praying. So there's the dualistic action that Ananias is to go and Saul is to keep praying and the Lord answers Saul's prayer, but how? He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. The Lord has given him this vision. This man to the name Ananias is coming in. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? The God of the universe who created everything, the shepherd of your salvation. Can you imagine this? Calling you to a task and using you? I mean, the, the God who formed this world, the God who formed us, the God who formed the cosmos and threw the stars into existence by his fingertips is calling, can you imagine calling you to a task? He is, and he has called each and every one of you to a task. The vision is given to Ananias. It was to show that Saul had really been converted by the Lord Jesus. It was, it, it was to affirm the vision. I want you to listen to the... This is a response. This is a response. And by the way, every one of us in here would probably respond this way too. It's a natural response, I suppose. But here's how Ananias responds. So I ask you this. Was his response without question? Listen to how Ananias responds. He says, Lord, I have heard, I heard many things about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name, Jesus. He questioned the Lord about Saul's integrity or as a person to be trusted. Haven't you heard? His name was already infamous amongst the church. And here's, here's a lesson for us all. How many times have we acted or said out loud, Lord, I, I know what your word says, but... I know what your word says, but I want to go this way. I have sat in many counseling sessions where you know the word and the word is presented, and they said, I know what the Bible says, but. And I almost want to say, well, session's over. I can't go any further. Oh, we aren't guilty of that? We aren't guilty of negating God's word? Every time we slander, every time we gossip, every time we harbor unforgiveness, we attempt to negate God's word and the sufficiency of Scripture. Every time we backbite, every time we talk about one another behind each, each other's backs, we turn our nose to what God has really said. And we try to undercut the sufficiency of Scripture as if God doesn't know already. And Ananias... Reminds God, Saul's reputation is at hand. Don't you know he's infamous? As if to say, are you sure, Lord? Oh, Ananias, well, I wouldn't think about it like that. No. 
The Lord gave the vision to Saul to demonstrate the Lord is calling Saul for a great work in the church. And I believe, I honestly believe that Ananias' heart was in the right place. And how do we know this? We know it because the Lord did not rebuke him sharply, but helped to curve his fear. He could have said, Ananias, you're, you are full of doubt. We serve, we serve a loving and patient and tender God. We serve a Lord who is patient with all of us. Listen how the Lord responds. The tenderness in this. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. That's what Ananias needed. What a great image this is. The Lord called Saul, a chosen vessel. Ananias was a chosen vessel to go to Saul. There is a Hebrew expression that is at play here. The expression is an instrument of choice. An instrument of choice. Meaning, meaning God did not choose. God did not choose. Uh, God chose him and Saul did not choose the Lord. In case we get that reversed. Saul didn't choose Christ. God chose him. I like, to think, I, th I like to think of it in terms of an instrument here. Being a musician, I like to take a guitar and I like to fine-tune it. Sometimes maybe remod it. Uh, some people like to take old beat-up relic guitars and remodel and jazz them up a bit. I imagine it like this. Somebody walks into a pawn shop and they see this beat-up 1956 Gibson Les Paul. Original 19. 56 Les Paul. It has been beat up. It has been scarred. The electronics hardly work. The owner of the pawn shop, even though he knows there's some value in this 56 Gibson Les Paul, it's so beat up that he hardly sees any value of it in its current state. The person goes in. They purchase it at a good price. They take it home. They sand it down. They refinish it. Change all the hardware and all the electronics in it. They refret it. They get it stringed up. And it's transformed. Now, after the transformation, it has become an instrument of choice, one that will have more use than it ever had before. And that is what the Lord has in store for Saul, and that is what the Lord has in store for you and I who are in Jesus. And now that this transformation and usage happens to all of us and Saul, it does not come without a price. The Bible tells us in verse 16, I will show him how much that he must suffer for my name's sake. And we will see this over the course of the journey through the book of Acts between, well, Saul and Paul and how Paul will suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. He will suffer so that the gospel can go to the uttermost parts of the world. He will and is an instrument of choice. Would Paul, Saul, suffer? According to Acts chapter 2, verse 11 to 25, the Bible says that he will be beaten three times with rods, once stoned, shipwrecked three times, in danger of robbers, in danger of Gentiles, people in the cities, his own people, in danger of his own people. He will be hunger, hungry and thirsty. And all of this is not to boast in what he has done or to boast in his travels or to pat himself on the back all of this is to boast in Christ. So yes, Paul, Saul, would suffer much for Jesus Christ. Now, Ananias, being a devout disciple that he is, 
he went and laid his hands on Brother Paul. He says, Brother, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road and he sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He prayed over him, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes. He was healed, he regained his sight, then he arose and he was baptized. Obedience on behalf of Ananias and on behalf of Saul. This dualistic action here, a response from an encounter from the Lord Jesus. What a great example that Ananias set. We don't think much about Ananias often, but he sets a great example of obedience and going when the Lord calls. Even though his name is not spread through the canon of Scripture, all it took was affirming an affirming word from the Lord Jesus and Ananias went. Take God at his word, friends. It is futile and disobedient to do otherwise. There is no, I know what the Bible says, but. Indeed, being born again calls us to action after conversion. For Saul, it was prayer, it was preparation. For Ananias, it was trusting in the word of the Lord Jesus and guiding Saul on his journey he was just to take Jesus at his word. And we are not told how the circumstances of Ananias, how he came to faith in Jesus, but I'm sure it was very similar to Saul's. He might not have had a Damascus Road experience, but he heard the truth of Jesus. He believed, repented, and was saved, following in believer's baptism. The beauty of our great God is that he takes us, the broken misfits that we are, and makes us into his handiwork. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why we were born again in Christ Jesus. The, former, uh, the reformer Martin Luther said this, God is such a craftsman. God is such a craftsman that he has pleasure in difficult masterpieces, not in trifling pieces of work. Also, he works with special pleasure from the block. Therefore, he has from of old selected especially very hard wood and stones, very hard wood and stone in order to show his skill in them. My friends, before Christ, we are like that hard stone. We are like that hard wood. The Lord began to chisel us into the image of the Son, Jesus. He begins to chisel off a little bit here. He begins to craft a little bit off here. We are not a perfected piece, but the closer that we draw to the Lord Jesus, the more we resemble Christ, the more He begins to chisel off some more here and there, and we become conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. And all the while, the Lord is shaping us. We are to go out into the world and make much of Jesus Christ. At least, that is what we are commanded to do. And the point is, once we encounter the Lord, there is a call to action. The scales fall from Saul's eyes. He sees, he begins to eat, he begins to be strengthened. He spends some days with the disciples at Damascus. From the time that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus until he began to preach, we are looking at least, at least bare minimum of a three-year span. We gather this from Galatians 11 through verse 20, where three years he, sent, he spent with his disciples, being discipled by Cephas. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce speculate, speculates that it could be more than three-year span before Saul began to preach. Others would say it was ten. So anywhere between three to ten years the Lord was beginning to shape Saul into his work of ministry. 
Regardless, the Lord was preparing him for a great work, and once this preparation period come to fruition, we find immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. And this becomes Saul's pattern through the duration of his ministry. Upon arriving in town, he heads straight to the synagogue and tries to convince his people that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah that they have been waiting for. No wonder. No wonder he was stoned, shipwrecked, and thrown out of the city or thrown out of the towns. And here's the kicker. Okay, here's the kicker. At first, the people were not worried or concerned about the message of Messiah. They were concerned about the messenger. Listen. All who heard him were amazed. Not at, that Jesus was Messiah. They were amazed, said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon his name. They wouldn't even say Jesus. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Hey, was it this supposed to be the man who was supposed to chase down these followers, Jesus, and bring them to justice? What happened? What's he doing here? Listen, friends. This is the age-old story. This is the modern story. This is the relevant story today, the ever-relevant story the true story that Jesus changes us and radically changes us. I've heard testimony after testimony how the Lord Jesus changed people into his royal ambassadors. And you know what? I am one of those and you are one of those who the Lord changed and changed radically. I, I, listen, he turned this garbage-throwing, vodka-drinking wretch of a person and made them into a child of the king. If he could do that for me, he could do that for anybody. Once Saul was set on this path, he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And I said before that Saul, Paul, is a master of persuasion, a master of handling the word of the Lord. He was proving Jesus was Messiah by using the Old Testament, the word of God. And that is our goal as well, to make much of Jesus. You might say, Pastor, what is our goal? What is our goal? Well, it's right there in the text, verse 22. It is in, to increase all the more in our walk. Not just by eating food, but increase in our knowledge, increase and in growing in our walk in the Lord. But here's the thing. We must be convinced enough that Jesus is the Christ to live out genuine faith. We must be convinced enough to get into His Word to get into fellowship, to live out our faith. The time, listen, the time for the wishy-washy Christianity needs to stop. The futility of disobedience was seen on the road to Damascus. It was futile for Saul to, re to resist the Lord. But then what happened once the Lord intervened? The encounter with Jesus shifts our worldview, our way of thinking, and our encounter calls us to action. Saul is a great example of the call that we have on our lives. What is that call? We're not apostles, we're disciples. Our call is to make much of Jesus in our walk of life. Wherever we are in our lane of life, we are to make much of Jesus along the way. Are you making much of Jesus? Have you been radically changed by him? There's a call to action to live it out. Listen, a side note, don't complain about what the church is not doing, okay, if you're not part of what the church is doing. Can I say that again? 
Don't complain about what the church is not doing if you're not part of what the church is doing here. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we just pray that these words from Acts will find us encouragement, conviction, so that we might make much of Jesus in all of our lives. Help us today as your disciples as we press forward. There's a call to action and there's a radical shift in the way that we think. We love you, Lord, for your grace. If there's one here today who doesn't know you, who, does, who has not submitted to Christ, then Lord, you might be calling them today, calling them by name like you did Saul, Saul, calling them to yourself to believe and to trust in the risen Jesus who died on the cross and triumphantly rose again on the third day, defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, and is forever glorified. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you for tuning in to the Piney Grove Baptist Church podcast. We would love to hear from you. Please send us your prayer requests at office at pgbcnc.org. You can also send any questions that you might have, any correspondence. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to pray for you. Till we meet again, friends, may the Lord bless you.